effects work in the Old West are frequent bedfellows. This week, we explore a rivalry that shaped El Paso, Texas in the 1880s between two brothel madams. The results are hot and spicy, but maybe not in the way that you're thinking. Let's get down and dirty on this week's episode of Footnoting History. Hey Footnoters, it's Josh, and I'm going to take you to a place that we've never traveled to together before, the Old West. Yes, folks, it's a true combo breaker, as we're not going to be talking about anything medieval or something that has to do with mid-19th century American Christianity. I think I've mentioned before that I live in El Paso, Texas. Despite what you may have heard about this dusty border town, it's really a wonderful place to live. The people and culture are incredibly warm and welcoming, the food is out of this world, and the pace of life is relatively laid back. Today, city leaders tout that El Paso is one of the safest cities in the United States. And for the most part, they're right about this. Yes, we have our share of crime and violence in El Paso, but nothing out of the ordinary. August 3rd, 2019, when a white supremacist drove hundreds of miles to murder nearly two dozen people in a Walmart, being an obvious exception here. Well, 140 years ago, El Paso had the exact opposite reputation. It was one of, if not the most, violent cities in the United States. Combing through the early history of the city is to know gunfighting in the streets, robberies on the regular, and more vice than Miami. That's a really stupid joke, and I hope it made someone snort, groan, or at least roll their eyes. Part and parcel of the vice available in this city was a wide selection of houses of ill repute, brothels. The sex trade had been with El Paso for as long as anyone had been in the area, but especially after the building of the railroads. Once the Southern Pacific Railroad came through what was once an outpost on the edge of Nowheresville, El Paso quickly became one of the major commercial centers in the American Southwest. And after the Southern Pacific came the Texas and the Pacific, the Santa Fe, and the Mexican Central Railroads. It was truly a crossroads for the West. Alice Clark, one of our two protagonists in the story today, arrived in El Paso fairly early on. She was the first woman to see the potential of building a large-scale sex trade operation in the city. Prior to Alice's arrival, most of the sex workers in the city were private contractors. Alice had come to El Paso from Louisville, Kentucky. Earlier in her life, she had married a lawyer and presumably had a significant startup fund when she arrived here in Texas. She bought a home on Utah Street, which in present-day El Paso is South Mesa Street, not too far from the U.S.-Mexico border. Alice was thick. And yes, that's thick with two C's. She stood at about six feet tall and weighed about 200 or so pounds. She's referred to as Big Alice or Fat Alice in contemporary newspapers, though we won't be calling her by any of those derogatory names. One of the secondary sources I consulted for this episode really hammers home that Alice was not what many men consider conventionally beautiful. 
and it really got under my skin. So I want to correct that and let Alice just be Alice for once. Alice, of course, did not have the only game in town. Soon after Alice had arrived in El Paso, the fiery Etta Clark, our second protagonist, arrived in this fast-growing border town. Etta was in every way the opposite of Alice. She was French-Canadian, had red hair, and only stood about five feet tall. And she was quite slender. Alice and Etta had their businesses in close proximity to each other. I'd say that they were walking distance apart, but does that really mean anything in the context of the Old West? From contemporary sources, though, it sounds like they were across the street from each other. Where Alice and Etta set up shop attracted many other sex workers in the coming months, and soon, South Utah Street had become the destination for those looking for some company during the evening hours. At this point, city leaders now understood that something had to be done to contain the more, let's say, sinful parts of El Paso from the more respectable neighborhoods of the city. It's not as if El Paso had written laws that permitted sex work, quite the contrary, but those laws were seldom enforced, if at all. City leaders decided on two things to keep the sins of El Paso quarantined. First, they began enforcing the parts of the city charter that outlawed prostitution. If followed to the letter, this would result in the mass arrest of every sex worker on South Utah Street, which was something that city officials knew wasn't possible. And quite frankly, I don't think that they saw that as desirable. I'm sure more than a few of them were clients, frequent clients. Their solution was to fine sex workers $5 for every week that they plied their trade. Eventually, it became $10, but even at the lower amount, this, let's call it what it is, vice tax, brought in significant amounts of money to the city. It even paid for the city's police force, if you can believe that. Sex work funding police budgets. Such was the Old West. City leaders also segregated the sex trade district into its own neighborhood and set limits on how much it could expand. The neighborhood became known as the Tenderloin, a name whose selection must have seemed obvious to everybody. And this arrangement worked, at least for a while. At one point in 1884, the sex workers of El Paso felt that the $10 weekly fine was just too much money and asked that it be dropped back down to the original $5 amount. The city responded by investigating who had not kept up to date on paying their fines and bringing them into court to have them pay up immediately. The fine remained at $10. But dear footnoters, I think you came for some drama, and boy, do I have some chisme for you. Alice Abbott and Etta Clark were rivals, that much was clear, each of them owned one of the biggest houses in El Paso, and they were, more or less, right across the street from each other. Business rivalries like this happen all the time. Really, I think it's a sign of healthy competition in the marketplace. But it became more than just a business rivalry when a sex worker named Bessie Colvin threw a Texas-sized wrench into the gears. Bessie Colvin, like Alice Abbott, hailed from Louisville, and once she got to El Paso, she built a large fan base and a growing list of clients. Alice was fond of Bessie and treated her quite well. 
often taking her for elaborate shopping trips to keep her wardrobe fresh. These trips were not gratis, though. Alice kept a ledger of all the transactions, and Bessie would need to pay things off over time via a share of her earnings. This is where the two women came to distrust each other. Bessie believed that Alice wasn't keeping an honest accounting of what Bessie owed. Alice accused Bessie of offering extras to her clients that Bessie kept off the books. This animosity grew and grew for about a year, and then the whole mess exploded. In April of 1886, Bessie Colvin had had enough. Alice had hurled so much verbal abuse at Bessie, and Bessie had had enough whiskey to drink, that Miss Colvin walked out of Alice's house saying that she was done. But to make matters even more dramatic, Bessie, on her way out the door, told Alice's customers that Alice was awful and that they should no longer do business with Alice. And to make matters even worse, she then dropped a big bomb. Bessie told Alice's customers, many of whom were there to see her, that she could be found across the street at, at a Clark's establishment. Actually, according to the Justice of Peace docket that records the criminal complaint for what we're about to see happen, Bessie said, and I quote, the prime cut will soon be found across the street. Bessie did go across the street, asked Etta Clark for a job, and Etta Clark, who was no fool, happily accepted Bessie into the fold. Bessie returned to Alice's house to collect her things, and that's when Alice found out what Bessie intended to do. I wonder if, because of their long-term animosity, Alice didn't take Bessie seriously when she had first walked out. But when Bessie came back, started to pack her things, and told Alice that she was going to work for Etta Clark, Alice dropped into a deep, red-hot rage. Alice took a swing at Bessie, which Bessie managed to duck. Bessie then ran out of the house, but Alice and two of her other employees chased after her. Bessie arrived back at Etta's house seeking protection. Alice and her enforcers came quickly after, and once Alice was there, and Bessie felt safe behind the door of Etta's house, Bessie started yelling every foul thing that she could think of in Alice's direction. Alice was banging on the door when Etta Clark answered, holding a three-foot-long brass pole, and asked Alice what she wanted. Alice replied that she was there to see Bessie. Bessie begged Etta to send Alice away because Bessie was convinced that Alice would beat her to death. Etta stood tall and said that Bessie did not want to see her former employer and told Alice to leave. Alice wasn't having it and consequently burst through the door. Etta responded by swinging that long brass pole. I'm making the brass pole seem more consequential than it actually was, I think. This pole was a gas lighter and was fairly flimsy, according to the sources I read. And quite frankly, though, even if that pole lighter, whatever it is, had been made from vibranium, I don't think it would have stopped Alice from chasing after Bessie. Alice was white-hot angry, and Alice squared up, told Etta that she had it coming, and then punched her right in the face. 
Alice then accused Etta of trying to steal any new girl that Alice had brought to her business and said that Etta cowardly let her sister do all of the dirty work. Alice then shouted, and I quote, I'll kill you, you bitch, and that little bitch of a sister. I'll beat her to death. Etta, having just recovered from the punch to her face, came at Alice again. This time, Alice grabbed Etta by the throat, slapped her a couple of times, and then pushed her back into her bedroom. Knowing that she could not physically best Alice Abbott, Etta Clark grabbed a revolver that she had nearby. Some sources say it was a 44 caliber revolver, others say it was a Colt 45. Either way, this is a fairly substantial firearm. After telling Alice to leave her house, and Alice responding that she would leave in a tone that clearly suggested that she would in fact not leave, Etta raised her gun, yelled, I'll kill the damn bitch, and pulled the trigger. The slug hit Alice near the pubic arch of the pelvis. I cannot imagine how much it had to hurt. Alice, with the help of her two assistants, made it back to her house and summoned a doctor. Fortunately for Miss Abbott, the bullet didn't hit anything too consequential. No organs or main blood vessels. She did go on to recover, but I think we can all imagine that it was a bit touch and go for a while. Across the street, Etta Clark was being put into handcuffs. She would be charged with attempted first-degree murder and had bail set at $2,000, the rough equivalent of about $64,000 in 2023. But this was at a Clark, and she had the money. Cash. A preliminary hearing happened between April 21st and 23rd, 1886, at which Etta Clark did not testify at the advice of her attorney. The judge presiding over the case eventually decided that assault with the attempt to murder was a charge that better suited the crime, and Etta went to trial the following month on May 12th. The two-day trial resulted in Etta's acquittal, with the jury only taking 15 minutes to decide that Miss Clark had shot Alice Abbott in self-defense. The day following the shooting itself, El Paso's newspaper of record, the El Paso Herald, informed the public on the details of the shooting. And in a twist that just tickles my dad-joke-infested heart, the Herald made a typo. When it came to the details of the bullet hitting Alice Abbott in the pelvis, rather than writing that it had hit Alice in the pubic arch, the reporter had written that the bullet had, in fact, hit Alice in the public arch. One El Paso historian, C.L. Sinichson, remarked that this misprinted statement was, quote, a more accurate statement of the case, perhaps, than the one which was intended we should all groan and roll our eyes. The incident soon circulated all around the Southwest and Texas, and it didn't make Alice Abbott look particularly good. Most reporters harped on her size. Men passed Alice in the streets and shouted at her, Hey Alice, how's your public arch feel today? The editor of the El Paso Herald, Frank Brady, in one write-up, compared Alice Abbott to an elephant named Junio, the mate of the largest elephant in the world at that time. Alice was furious. She sought to hunt him down, but Brady's fellow reporter, Frank Wells Brown, later claimed that he had bought a ticket for Brady to flee to Albuquerque. Brady never came back. 
Now, how did all of this resolve? In the short term, Alice recovered and Bessie Colvin went back to work for Alice Abbott. Other consequences can be told through Alice's photo album full of pictures and her friends, one of whom, until recently, of course, was Etta Clark. Etta's photo has some markings on it. Alice made notations on quite a few of her photos. One that occurs repeatedly is the capital letter A enclosed in a heart. Some have theorized that this was, is, a sign of Alice's sexual involvement with these women. It may be, perhaps, just a sign of platonic affection. I wasn't able to find any evidence that proved definitively one way or the other. Etta's photo tells a different story. As shown on the episode page at footnotinghistory.com, Alice drew a big pink X over Etta and drew an arrow pointed at her heart. She also wrote, quote, whore to N-words, unquote, in the margin between the photo and the edge of the page, which was apparently the highest insult one white worker could level against another. There's a story to be told about race and Old West sex work. I'm sure someone has written on it, and when I find it, I'll be sure to report back. We could end the story here, but if I did that, I'd be cheating you out of some pretty good details. Because Alice didn't just stop thinking about this moment of her life. I mean, could you? I certainly couldn't. Let's fast forward two years to 1888. On the morning of July 12, 1888, Etta Clark's house erupted into flames. Fortunately for the occupants, including Etta, they were all able to escape with their lives. And Etta herself had gotten quite lucky. She had managed to save all of her jewelry, money, and pet birds from the inferno that was her home. The authorities suspected arson, evidenced by the smell of kerosene, and the fire having started in three locations at the same time. A month-long investigation, however, did not yield any results. Nearly a month later, police arrested a black man named John Duncan in Colorado City, Texas, for public drunkenness. Colorado City, Texas is nearly 400 miles away from El Paso. Texas is big, y'all. Mr. Duncan, while sobering up in a jail cell, mumbled something about burning a house in El Paso. When he had fully sobered up, Duncan confessed to burning down at a Clark's house with the assistance of two other black men. Alice Abbott had hired all three of these men to burn her rival's establishment down. On August 12th, upon Duncan's return to El Paso, by armed guard of course, Alice Abbott and the two other accomplices were arrested. Alice's bond was set at $1,000. One of the black men, Ben Johnson, had his bail set at $1,500, which Alice paid. Duncan and the other man, Stuttering Bill Ragland, had to sit in jail and wait for the trial. When the trial finally came, the evidence presented was damning and clear. Alice Abbott was found guilty and fined a total of $500. Yes, $500. For causing what totaled to be over $7,000 worth of damage. And still, Alice appealed the verdict. The case finally resolved five years later, after 15 continuances, following Alice's request for a new trial. Alice eventually had her case heard by the Court of Appeals, 
which resulted in all of the charges against her being dropped. This is mind-boggling to me. Clearly, I have a lot to learn about the law and the Old West. This is one of the downsides of most of the documents from the case being in the hands of private collectors. I don't know on what basis the court decided this. If you're worried about how things turned out for Etta, don't be. Everything turned out okay for her in the end. She ended up meeting a wealthy and very married liquor distributor named J.P. Dieter, whom Etta wooed. Etta convinced Dieter to fund a new brothel for her, which ended up costing $75,000 for the building and $50,000 for the decorations. It also cost Dieter his marriage. Alice Abbott died three years after winning her appeal in April of 1896. Newspapers apparently didn't say much about her passing due to a boxing match that had captured a lot of attention. I looked into what boxing match it was, but I couldn't nail anything down. I did discover, however, that on December 2nd, 1896, there was a battle for the heavyweight championship in San Francisco, and it was refereed by none other than Wyatt Earp. Yes, that Wyatt Earp. And apparently, Earp helped throw the fight. If that piqued your interest, friends, it piqued mine too, and you can expect an episode on that sometime this year. Etta Clark would live longer, but would be the victim of fire again. This time it wasn't Alice, well, unless, of course, Alice's hatred endured beyond the grave. That's terrifying. Etta began running her business out of the third floor of an opera house in 1904 after she fell ill, and that opera house caught fire. She died a few years later while visiting her sister in Atlanta due to ongoing complications from smoke inhalation. So footnoters, you know what time it is. I'm about to ask my favorite question. What do we do with the story of Alice Abbott and Etta Clark? Is it a salacious story of two women of ill repute duking it out in the Old West? Does it provide us with commentary on the relentlessness of the Old West? Does it confirm popular suspicions and prejudices about the time and the people who lived it? Of course, it is all and does all of those things. But I also think it's something more. It illustrates contemporary assumptions about gender, especially femininity. It allows us a window to see the dynamics of race in the Old West, however thinly we looked at it in the episode. And more importantly, I think it demonstrates the fluidity of law in the far-flung places of the American West, where we tend to see the Old West as a place of outlaws, and we do. The popular notion of the West was that the strong arm of the law was there to set the whole mess right. That's clearly not the case here. Much like now, people bent and used the law to their advantage as best they could, and sometimes put the welfare of the city above what seemed on the surface to be the morally and legally correct thing to do. We like to imagine the Old West as a place of absolute moral clarity, even during its chaos and lawlessness. It's one of the many disconnects in how Americans understand their past. Well, friends, I think we have some rethinking to do. And maybe, just maybe, we need to watch those old John Wayne films with a much more critical eye. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. 
Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to the public arch. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. Please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe when you love it. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you later.